the feedback can be that explicit, or you can just pay attention to how long a problem stays hidden and whether people bring it up and how they bring it up and who they bring it up to. If something lives in the organization for a long time in a broken down state, that's feedback about the willingness for me as a leader to hear what's wanted and needed. And then how people go about resolving it is further feedback about where we think the impetus is for the cause, how courageous, how willingness, how willing are people to have the conversations about the way they're relating to what's going on and to call each other up to what's wanted and needed. Do you know how to scale your leadership in your organization so that all the responsibility doesn't fall on your shoulders? Stay tuned because we're going to dive deep into scaling leadership. Hello, my friends. My name is Chad, and this is the Naked Leadership Podcast, high-stakes conversations for relentless company founders. My co-hosts and I have over six decades of combined experience in leadership coaching, and this podcast is where we explore it all. No conversation is too risky. I heard a saying once. It goes like this. Good leaders create good followers, but great leaders create great leaders. This week, Adrian, Dan, and I sit down and talk about the idea of scaling leadership. And yes, even that term we dive deep into and how it both helps and hurts the conversation when we talk about developing leaders. We also talk about the thinking that keeps us stuck carrying all the weight of leadership. And finally, we talk about what it takes for us to build leaders inside of our organization. Also, you don't want to miss the lightning round of hot takes that we do at the end of the conversation. This is where I get quick reactions from Dan and Adrian on certain topics. In this one, we touch on pineapple on pizza and school shootings. So you don't want to miss it. Let's dive in. Great to be here. Adrian, Dan, how are you, gentlemen? Wonderful. Wonderful. Great. Are you you okay after all this technical upset? Well, I'll calm back down. Okay. (laughs) I knew knew he'd be a little edgy about that. The world's not the way it should be, damn it. The world is not the way that it should be. So it's cold in California. Yeah, I mean, we came out for a vacation, and damn it, California didn't deliver. You know what? What's new? I know. Well, I think, you know, the winds were at almost about 70 miles per hour yesterday. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Windsurfing. Are you doing windsurfing or kite surfing? The place we stay here has a bunch of electric scooters that our little Milo was so stoked to ride on, right? So we had made plans that we're going to ride to lunch on these scooters down the boardwalk. And we did. And let me tell you, we were the only souls on the entire boardwalk, and we were getting blasted by sand at about 60 miles per hour. Nothing like like being sandblasted, you know? And he still had the biggest smile on his face. And a lot of of sand in his teeth. (laughs) That's right. I love him. That's great. That's well, great. here we are. We're we're here to connect around this idea of scaling leadership. Yes. Really, the idea, the challenge that I wanted to talk about and have a conversation with you, a gentleman, about is I think so many people that listen to this, high-driving leaders, uh-huh. do most of what they do in their leadership roles naturally. <sighs> and that's really great um, for them. Sometimes that presents as a challenge when they're wanting to what the the what the the world calls, and I, w- I even want to dive into this with you two is scaling their leadership, meaning how do they create other leaders within their organization so that that not everything stays on their plate or in their realm of influence, that they can invite others to be leaders into their organization. So I think the challenge is high. And the opportunity is also high when we think about how do we take this thing that we do so naturally that just really comes to us uh, and we really want it. How do we then invite others into that same way of being? So that's really the the challenge and the and the topic of discussion I want to dive into into with you guys. Um, I want to. Oh, go ahead, Adrian. You got your oh, you're jumping. Well, I was just thinking. You know, a part of the challenge is comes i think comes out of seeing leading as doing i think that that's really i mean when i think about issues i have with myself issues i see with clients on a regular basis and i think it comes out of this conversation there's a whole realm a whole world as seeing leading as doing so there's tons of assumptions baked into that that ends up you know creating a lot of our issues but it's like it's and it seems even even just today, I just got off a call with a guy, 
Um, and I just said, Hey, would you stop being so surprised that other, that, that, that the people that he's working with are consistently are the same way they've always effing been. Would you stop yeah. being so surprised? Yeah. And, and it's because he's really looking at it from this leading as doing. Right. Um, that's, it can be frustrating because to you, it is. Why isn't, can't they see? I mean, right. it's so obvious. Right. That. And they must be in bad faith because I can see it and I know what to do and I've told them what to do. Uh -huh. And they still, even though they sometimes, they do it often, they don't do it well or they can't produce the result or why didn't they, why didn't they think about this before they moved? Because it's pretty obvious based on what yep. I'm seeing that if you're engaged, you would do this A, B, and C and not D, E, and F. But they did D, E, and F, and they continue to. And when I talk to them, they think they did A, B, and C. Yeah. Do you have an yeah. example of that, Dan, or or something that you're thinking? Yes, in mind? I do. I, yeah. Uh, so, I, I what I came up against this quite a bit when I was growing my ministry, trying to train trainers. And uh, one of the things, one of the principles in the training room, is to identify the biggest influencers. You know. Some people have more influence than others, and you can pick that up. And then when something comes happens in the room, particularly something that breaks down, <clears throat> call on an influencer and work with them because if you break through with them, you're going to catch everybody who follows them. Uh -huh. But inevitably, people would pick people, young trainers would pick people that they could they knew they could influence, but they weren't the influencers in the room. Uh -huh. And even though and I literally got down one time and said, okay, we, something occurred in the room and I asked the trainer because she was going to go out on the floor. And I said, who would you go to? And she pointed to the three people I would never go to. Right. I, so then I asked her, well, why would you go to them? Why not this person, that person? Well, they're going to push back. Yeah, but that's the point. <laughs> You want people to push back. You want to, I can, we can learn something that's going on here and, and then we can engage it. And if we can open up a bigger possibility, then everybody that, that's persuaded by them go with it. But the fear of, of, get, of missing, which my point with later on as I discovered this, is if you miss, no problem. Then you, you get a chance to correct, which produces trust in the room. But, you know, that sounds pretty easy. But when you're, in, you know, got 50 eyes on you and you're the trainer and you think you're supposed to have all the answers, which is another issue. Like these, like you said, Adrian, this is very, what we do is packed with multiple distinctions that are just automatic if you're accomplished at it. And to pass it on is to be able to get a hold of how I'm viewing the world what I'm listening for, <clears throat> how I re relate to failure in the process. That, that's a, and what I'm aiming at ultimately in the process. If if I'm aiming really at empowering them, that's different than aiming at yeah, but being, that, the, being the well, answer. Let, but let me interrupt you, Dan. See, but most people aren't in that type of conversation. Most people are in the let me tell people what to do conversation. Right. Yes. Right? So let me yeah. tell people what to do or let me just show people what to do yeah okay. and in the showing of them what to do there's a there they think that that is leading other people there's like being an example being an example is leadership and we know that doesn't work people that are listening to this know that doesn't work because you're busy out there doing being as effective as you can be let's say and, on a daily basis and it still doesn't it still isn't and, making the difference and i don't have the time to do this how can i get it done right There's on no way that i have time to do what dan just said <laughs> really <laughs> right <laughs> i don't have that's that right. time what do i do that's right yeah, yeah that sounds like a lot to do dan that sounds like a like quite an investment and i don't have that time yeah shouldn't people just know how to do this thing yeah well, especially if i've already told them Right. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Or I've given them a title or I've given them a raise or I've given them some autonomy. Shouldn't they be able to figure this out on their own? But because by damn, I've been able to. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, I've been talking about this the last few days with people because it's been showing up. It's a lot of the trouble comes up whenever uh, Dan and I were talking about this in a room with a bunch of leaders last week as well. That I think the natural view of empathy is like this: is that if I were in their shoes, I would. Uh-huh. And we call that empathy, which is projection, essentially. Because it's like, because it's obviously there's like a lot baked into that. Like it's usually me looking at myself in an ideal sense. Um, if I was my ideal self over there in this person's shoes, that's what I would be doing. That's not empathy. Actually, it's, that's advocating. It's really not. It's advocating what I would do. It's not empathy. You're right. 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 It's on. like campaigning. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I'm saying this is what you ought to do. You need to do this. You ought to do this. Come on. I told you to do this. Right well, on. Yeah, and it's based on comparison. Yeah. Because I'm comparing my best self to them and what they're doing right now. Uh, you know, and so and therefore there's not a lot of there's not a lot of connection in that conversation because it's usually packed with judgment. <laughs> because, you know, we all think of ourselves who was it Dan that said like our view of ourselves as humans fluctuates yeah. between flattery and pure fantasy. Yeah, that's uh it's a psychiatrist, a famous let's psychologist. Say, let's say it's Churchill. Yeah. But the. <laughs> or Einstein. That's even more. Uh, Einstein. Check this. Like Einstein said, our view of ourselves fluctuates between flattery and pure fantasy. Fantasy. Yeah, but anyway, but we're always like, we're, I think people were naturally thrown to, if I was in their shoes, I would be doing that. And I think this generates lots of, when it comes to leadership inside organizations, it generates lots of frustration because we're naturally thinking about what they should be doing. Yeah. based on what I think I would be doing if I was them. And it's and anyway, we're not yet to the conversation around what actually solves for this or actually generates possibility in this. It's just like this is this is the head against the wall. And to your point, Chad, when people jump in, they have a conversation saying, I don't want to I don't want to be talking to these people about this all the time. No. I don't want to come in and teach this. I don't want to have to I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to. They should the know this and and I it's William Glasser, by the way, who said that. Uh huh. And and um, it, it, Einstein's cousin. Anyway, <laughs> Einstein's cousin, his third yeah. cousin, twice yeah. removed. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you think about it. The need to advocate what I know, for efficiency's sake, is is part of the part of the breakdown because I think I'm talking to somebody who sees the world the way I do. But I get yeah. crazy with it, I, and if they don't, then I think there's something wrong with them. I thought because you know, I feel betrayed because I thought they did. Now I feel right like on. I hired the wrong person. In fact, I think they fooled me. I think they lied. I don't think they had the competency they said they had when they came in here. Right on. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking for the a book behind me. It's not here. It's in the closet. The um, uh, what's the book? Conversational intelligence. When she says like the number one human bias is that other people think the way we think. Yeah. And so when it comes to like scaling leadership, uh, we naturally throw that paradigm in this because we're comparing outsides to outsides. I'm doing this, so you obviously ought to be doing this. In this context, I'm doing this, so duh, you ought to be doing this as well. And then it becomes about, this is why we give a hard time all the time. I give a hard time. I won't speak for you guys. But like other companies that are just about teaching formulas, like if you're about if you're going to grow your company, just do these five steps and like as if this formula is going to solve for the human dilemma, like yeah. the, the complexity of humanity, uh, like like the formula seems like it's so. But, you know, if you put, you know, uh, lots of uh, you know, ice cream on a shit sandwich, it still tastes like shit. So that the anyway, the, the kind of the hyper calculation of doing is where I think a lot of people get stuck and actually end up going to despair when it comes to thinking about what's possible for their company because they don't see people doing what they're doing. Yeah, well, I think it comes and then it comes down to they're not going to do it. I got to do it, and I got right on already going. So I don't have any time now yeah. for them. I don't have any time for my family. I don't even have time for me. I'm burnt out, and and then all kinds of mischief goes off from there. Right yeah. on. The formula, so Adrian, as you talk about the formula, it's so attractive because it's oversimplified. Right on. Right? It's like, so that's what sells, right? If you do any sales course for any, especially the type of co like the type of work that we do, you listen to any sales expert, he's going to say, 
put your list together of five steps to freedom or whatever the whatever the the freaking thing is yeah and and they know it works because it's so attractive to people yeah. to simplify it in that way and to put it back in really what it is is it's catering to their it's i'll say our as humans it's catering to our desire for things to be easy uh-huh. and for things to be outside of us right if you right. just do these things then you'll have this no unfortunately it's a lot more complicated to that than that but you can't really sell all you need to do is be this and then you will have this that's yep. just it's just not it's you not a good example of this go watch <laughs> a golf swing commercial <laughs> Two simple thoughts to the perfect swing, and none of it works. <laughs> so I welcome to what Dan's doing in between uh, podcast interviews. Right, he's doing it right now. Right now, I, I his golf video on the. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, I, I mean, this gets me thinking about the way that most of the business culture talks about this, which is even this term "scaling leadership." Uh-huh. You know. If you ask most any founder what scaling means, it's to take the humanness out of it, yeah. right? Uh-huh. It's it's to uh-huh. remove the variables of human yes. in order to have predictable outcomes repeatedly. Yes. And so I'm I'm interested even in this conversation about I think it paints a detrimental picture for founders or for for business leaders when we talk about scaling leadership because what I think most here is how do I take the variables out? How do I take the the human variables out and just create a system or a machine? Yeah. You know, Chad, I was thinking about how you came on with us. You've been working with us for about five years, and you mm-hmm. didn't come on in this capacity, and you went through quite a process, and we <laughs> missed it. A little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, and we, we took so many cuts at the problem of saying, how do we help Chad get up to what he wants to do? And to be a coach, trainer, and, I, you know, the multiple frustrations that we have navigated together, I think is a perfect example of it because we certainly had systems and things to do and frameworks to work in. And it, it took, I mean, your will is your intent, really. But, but you know, the, the process, I think, is instructive because I remember, I think you left twice. You kind of in, out, in, out. And yeah, and 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 amicably, no problem. But you know, I know I was scratching my head. How can I support Chad? Because I knew what you wanted to do, and I knew what you wanted to do would make a huge difference here. And and Adrian did too. And we're constantly we were like, how do we support Chad in doing this, right? And it involved an open hand and a willingness to kind of go with the process. You know, the process, and we could. What we did with you won't work with somebody else. Right on. Right? It's like, it, it, and that when you start thinking about scaling leadership, you're right. That that kind of reduces it to some kind of formula when, when there are certainly some principles and a framework that you can work from. But then you got to be prepared for when you hit reality and what reality is going to call for may not even be what you're up for. Yeah. I don't think there's any shortcut to it. No, I don't either. I think there's, but I enjoyed the process. I got to tell you that. Me too. I, I, yeah. That I think that's one of the key things is to really enjoy the process, which means you really, for me, I know one of our standards is we really got to get out. We got to connect with the person we're hiring. And if we can't, if if I don't want to get up at eight in the morning and meet with this person over and over again, prop, you know, I, I got to either get my head straight or not do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. But mm-hmm. there, are, there are so many different aspects of it. Have I even stopped to really think about what it is that makes me accomplished at what I'm doing as a founder? Have I really yeah. thought about that? Are the things that I've identified really the secret sauce? Sure. Right? Like, yeah. Yep. I think that's where we'll. Uh, that's. I think that's where we'll end up in this conversation is some ideas around who it takes to be. You know, who we have to be in order to actually invite others into leadership in our in our organization. One of the other points that I thought about this as I was thinking about the challenges is they, and Adrian, you, or Dan, maybe it was you, Dan, started going there. It's like not giving, not wanting 
to give up decision-making power or decision-making responsibility. Uh-huh. Like, it sounds nice, right? It sounds nice to have other leaders in your in your organization. <laughs> <laughs> but then when it comes down to it, do founders really think about what that means as far as the responsibility and power that those who are leading in the organization will be wielding? I think innately uh-huh. they do because... I know I've done it, and I've done it poorly before. And when you do it poorly and you give the power away and it doesn't work and you see it in, like, I, I literally saw my company go from a $300,000 cash position positive to five, to a $250,000 cash position negative in two and a half years. So a $550,000 swing in two and a half years. And I can't say, I, I can say I failed at, and even getting that corrected, it literally caused such a havoc that I had to reinvent the company. So, I mean, I, and I, 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 you know, I kind of took a half-ass shot at it, didn't work, then and then I backed off, and I literally got into a place where, if you can believe this, okay, go ahead, screw it up, watch what happens. You don't want to listen? Go screw it up. That's real supportive. <laughs> That's going to show you. Yeah. A so little, little, little Italian in there, a little vendetta. Right, and I ended up paying for it. Sure. And so did they, of course. It was hard on on them as well. I, you know, I don't. But but that the kind of head games that a founder can get in when they give away authority, you got to really be sure. Like you got to, like you don't. I think I knew what I was doing. I was just throwing. I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Here, take it. You were giving away yeah. tasks. And and yeah yeah and authority with them. And this, yes. these people, they were pretty good at what they did, but they had never run the whole shooting match. And and I didn't take into account the kind of, like, like knowing which knob to turn to get the thing. It's like, it, it's more complex than people think. And even though it's it looks automatic to the founder, somebody else has only got a feel for a part of it. And so to get a feel for the whole of it, and that's another deal. And, and the founder rightfully ought to be cautious or at least careful at how they and diligent at, at how they give authority and responsibility away you want to give them together you know it's like it's like the old i don't want to make this into it you know it's like the old i'll do it now watch me do it and now you do it i watch you do it now you do it alone kind of thinking uh-huh you really and that's like in every little piece because somebody could be a really good salesperson and be a horrible manager. Uh-huh. And and that's there's nothing worse than you bring your top performer up and then three other medium performers go to the competition, which I've mm-hmm. seen happen. Sure. Yeah. I just want to make sure everybody caught that. Dan gave you the formula for scaling. Right. There it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a check in the morning. <laughs> Bill. Yeah. So, Adrian, talk to me about you know we've you, we've seen this in our own own organization i'm sure you've seen this personally and also with clients where does this go what's the where are we headed when we're unable to create um leaders within our organization other than ourselves well where does it go uh, to to tons of frustrations I mean, that's that's where it goes and they could be frustrations that end up you churn tons of talent and you bring people in with lots of promise, um, but then you don't give them the autonomy because there's not trust there. Um, there's not a process in which you're going to like properly enroll them into what they're doing. And so a top-down leader that sees leadership as doing is going to manage behavior. And anybody that's like really bright will just not settle for that. Because they're, they're they're bright beyond their their current day activity, right? So they're no. not you're not celebrating what they're capable of. You're managing their behavior, and nobody that's full of dignity is up for doing that. So, um, anyway, so the frustration because people don't work out around here. Like I keep hiring, you know, I'm putting quotes for people that are listening. Like keep getting frustrated because I, you know, I keep bringing people in. And they, they won't do it. And so they, this revolving door. And there's also, I mean, there's an impact on the leader because now they feel really alone. And they've generated aloneness, but they don't think it about that way. 
they just feel really alone because that you know constantly they can't seem to translate um their own like uh they can't seem to generate i guess new behaviors because that's kind of what they're looking at new behaviors to get these things done and so things feel there's a there's a a mood of resignation because yeah. you know we're playing a game yeah the culture yeah. The culture gets the, resigned. You know, cultural yeah that's right and so that's kind of where it goes. Just lots of frustrations ends up and they end up seeing a hit in results and they justify why for a while. And then there's a trend to, to diminishing returns on investment, uh, less results. And they tend to look to other people about why those results aren't happening or tend to look to the market. And anyway, they play that game for a while and then you know, eventually they call us. Yeah. Because... I, was, I was hired to restructure in the, in the nineties, a uh, pretty big, finance department of a fairly influential company and there were three companies that came in and we each got a day to look at that to go through and interview the department and then come up with a proposal and give it to them and and then we would present our proposal to the cfo and i remember i presented my proposal to the cfo as the last one and i saw these big two big east coast firms had two big stacks of paper and i had two pages I'm thinking, ah, oh, shoot, I'm never going to get this. This is crazy. So the CFO is a great gal. She says she was known as the hatchet woman. She didn't know that, but that's what she was known as. I found that out in my interviews. And she says, well, what do you think it's going to do? Because her turnover rate was 75% a year, like a year in the department. And these are, these are you know, graduates of Fordham and, and you know, Harvard and, you know, Tufts business schools, big schools, and they're, yeah, they're blowing out going to the competition. And so I sat down and I put my two-page right next to the other ones, and I said, well, I really want this work, but I want to tell you the truth. And she goes, what? what, what what's the problem? I go, well, actually, you're the problem. And she says, what do you mean? I said, well, what, when I talk to these people, they call you the hatchet lady. Do you know that? She goes, yeah, I think I, I heard something like that. I go, yeah. And she goes, tell me more. So I said, Look, you've got legacy systems out there. You've got these very creative MBAs wanting to do make a difference, and you've got them locked into these legacy systems, and they see other ways to do it, and you don't have time to talk with them, and blah 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 blah. At the end of the meeting, she shook my hand. I got the job. I go what? And she go. I go. Why did you give me the job? She said, I could understand what you said. I don't understand what they said, but I understand this. This this I can correct and. We turn that thing around in three months, but, but you know, to have that kind of conversation with somebody, and that that's part of it, is our yeah. you create a relationship where you can have those kinds of conversations just to get at the problem. Like, uh, like yeah. she, she was able to fire back, and I was able to, you know, give her some anecdotal information that really helped her see where the where the breakdowns were, and and how she was missing it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the major crux here is that if if you see leading is doing, you're going to search for solutions and what you think the problem is. Yeah. And the uh -huh. problem is the doing. So we got to solve the doing. Yeah. If you so, but if you you know, we'll quite often sit down with a room and talk about intention and mechanism, and where do results come from? Do do results come from intentions, or do results yeah. or do or, or do results come from mechanism and it's usually a split room and most people are most people are typically heavy on the mechanism side because it seems to make sense to us um and that that usually the first point is and in, in that in that distinction is that the fact that everybody around the table thinks that the birthplace of results is distinct like either intention or mechanism the fact that we're not fully aligned there is lesson number one Lesson number two is we invite Tell people. Why. why is that lesson number one? Lesson number one is is because if we find ourselves in great results, we're going to double down on what we think is working. If we find ourselves, so like if half the room thinks it's intention, like our vision and our commitment to one another, that's great. That's really going to double down on. If we think that it's a mechanism, we're going to double down on mechanism. On the other side, if we have breakdown, if things aren't working and we think the problem is in the mechanism, I'm sorry, we think the solution comes from mechanism. We're going to go to mechanism to solve the issue. And we're going to if argue we, with those who think it's intention, and now you're going to have a, 
on top of it, a division on the team, as there isn't today, an alignment about where to go to look to make a correction leadership-wise. Right on. And our conviction is that it's 100% intention. And that mechanism is the caboose. The intention right. is always the engine. Not the mechanism doesn't matter. Mechanism is a symptom. And the intention is always the cause. <laughs> and therefore, for us, if, if you have these frustrations happening, it's because most likely, um, if, you're, if you're coming up against the challenges of scaling leadership in your organization, you're probably looking at the mechanism, i.e. looking at leadership as doing, instead of having a new conversation, which is, hold on, leadership is being. Leadership is, which is your conversation with, with, with Hatchet Lady or Dragon Lady. <laughs> you know, the, the, that the, the issue is you. Now, all of what happens, it's happening out there in the bullpen is because of how you are right here in this office. And if she was willing to take that on and say, hold on, how I've been with myself, how I've been with the organization, how I've been with my people generates a whole culture. And out of that culture comes the behavior. And out of that culture comes the conversations. Yeah. And out of that cu culture comes the mood. Out of that culture comes the future. Out of the culture comes, everything comes out of that, the conversation that we are together. So if you're going to scale leadership, be willing to jump into a brand new conversation that, hold on, like uh, I was thinking about this the other day, that scaling leadership is really scaling the conversation of becoming. Now, that sounds really weird. The conversation of becoming, like who I am and who we are together. And who we're becoming and, together. And who we're becoming together. Like what are we up to here? To your point earlier, Dan, around what is our aim here? Are, is that perfectly aligned? Probably not. Uh, and and the 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 gap between one person and the next person will generate a t a, lots of mischief and nice. lots of misalignment and behavior, lots of different types of meetings, lots of different types of integrity, lots of lots of avoidance and breakdowns, lots of gossip and back like and that's and that could be because we haven't written down the rules. Or it's because we haven't set the standard on who we are and how we're going to, how from that answer, how we're going to operate together. So when I think about this, just to put a button on it, it's like, if you want to scale leadership, it's time to take a look at who I am as a leader, as a founder, number one, and what would, and this is why feedback is really essential because there's usually a pretty big gap between how I view myself and how other people view me. And, yeah. you know, and like, so like if I'm busy trying to focus on the externals, like just watch me, you know, I might celebrate the fact that I'm up till 3 a.m. getting something done, but that actually the, the grandstanding of the fact that I, I sacrifice so much, which is usually a martyr type conversation actually have... generates a lot of withholding and a lot of fear and, and complaint in the organization. So uh, they don't talk about what was not happening in the meeting, in the way in a project up until what, what end up, end up like kind of quote unquote, forcing the person to stay up late at night. Instead, um, we champion all this martyrdom behavior and that type of, so when you talk about scaling leadership, you talk about really what are the attitudes and behaviors that come out of those attitudes that are to be championed. Life is not fair. It's what you negotiate. Let me say that one more time. Life is not fair. It's what you negotiate. Now, that's an interesting thought. If that's true, it means that everything you have in life right now, the possessions, the relationships, the fitness, the mindset, are all a product of your negotiations with others and yourself. And if that's true, wouldn't you want to be very clear on how you negotiate what's effective and what's ineffective? what your strengths are and what your blind spots are. It is, after all, producing all the results in your life. So here's the deal. We put together a 15-question quiz that you can take in five minutes or less and find out exactly what your negotiation style is. The results of this quiz will give you insight into your strengths and blind spots in negotiation. It will also give you insight in how you can accentuate those strengths or compensate for the blind spots. Think for just one second with me all of the conversations you're having in your life. Think about compensation or advancement conversations with people on your team. 
discussing financial decisions with a partner, or just getting your kids to get their damn shoes on so that you can leave the house. All of these conversations are negotiations. This simple yet powerful tool has the potential to reinvent the way you get what you want in every aspect of life. Go to negotiation.takenewground.com right now or click the link in the description of this episode and find out what negotiation style you embody. You can thank us later. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think about, um, you know, we mentioned, I think, Dan, you mentioned it earlier, is really being able to be aware of what it is that brings leadership into our organization through ourselves. Uh-huh. Like, well, how are we being, right? I was, whenever I'm working with clients, um, one of my, one of my, uh, one of the things that I tell them is, you know, awareness is 85% of the job. If you can get aware of what's going on, like how Uh do you lead? What is working? What is not working in your leadership? If you can actually take a moment to pause and get clear about that. And guess what, Adrian, like you were talking about feedback. That's the only way that you can be certain what's actually happening in your leadership. Like Uh you can do this in a silo by yourself in a vacuum and observe yourself and do it all up inside your head but you're going to get bad information. So you want might want to put this out to the team, get some feedback from the team and the people around you to find out what kind of leader you're being for them, what's working and what's not working, what motivates them, what, what takes away their motivation, but become intimately aware of yourself as a leader. And that's more than half the battle. Then you can be aware of what's going to work with those who are you're bringing into your organization, and then you can start to see that stuff well, and invite more of it. The, the feedback can be that explicit, or you can just pay attention to how long a problem stays hidden, and yeah. whether people bring it up, and how they bring it up, and who yeah. they bring it up to. Those are all feedback. That's all feedback. Yep. If something lives in the organization for a long time, in a broken down state, that's feedback about the willingness for me as a leader to hear what's wanted and needed. Yeah. And then how people go about resolving it is further feedback about where we think the impetus is for the cause. Like, uh-huh. as Adrian said, either it's mechanism or intention. How courageous, how willingness, how willing are people to have the conversations about the way they're relating to what's going on and to call each other up to what's wanted and needed, you know? Yeah, this is why, you know, in our previous definition of empathy, this is why it doesn't work, is because there's so much agenda in that way of looking at it. Instead of, as a leader, really practicing curiosity, which I think is one of the the underlying points of yours, Chad, it's like awareness. Well, how am I aware? Well, let me, can I get curious about what's happening versus being sure about what's happening? And if I'm curious about it, if I've got a person that's, I mean, if you, if you think about how to operationalize this, so like with, if I've got a person that I'm looking to raise up, I can watch their behavior. That's one thing to do. I can also get in their shoes. Like I like put myself behind their eyes. Like how are they looking at this thing? Yeah. Because how they're looking at this thing will be generating everything that you see because everything, everything comes out of perspective. So it, but if I want to scale my leadership, I need to get all the way back to that elemental thing about perception because it's an elemental source. Like how, because behavior and I mean, every, how do I say this more, more directly? Because, well, you know, r- results come, results come out of actions taken or not taken. All action comes out of decisions that are made or not made. Decisions are all made out of thinking that's there before, but thinking always is generated out of belief how I'm viewing the world, how I see me, how I see you, how I see it, how I see the future, all that. So if you're going to scale leadership, you got to get all the way back to that elemental phase of how someone sees things. Uh-huh. You can keep trying to dress up the symptoms or you can get to the causal issues, which is always around perception. If you do that open-handedly instead of so doggedly or prescriptively, like telling people what to think, telling people the way they should look at things, instead of like exploring with them how they're looking at things, that can make a major difference. That's why it's like one conversation can equal 10 if you get back at that elemental level. Well, people naturally point, want, yeah, go ahead. When you, when you talk about 
empathy. It's really demonstrating an understanding of the other side's needs, interest, and what you're talking about here, perspective, without necessarily agreeing. Yes. It's like, that's the key is like, I think like the, the weekend we had last week, Ed, remember that, that one uh, executive thought that listening was agreeing. Like that's yeah. why it was so hard to listen, but I can listen to your interests, your concerns, and your perspective, really understand them without agreeing to them. And that, that helps me have some seed ground or you know, an understanding, a context, then to assert what I want to see happen. Because I now see how you see it, and I'll be better at framing it so you can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most people have a lot of frustration because they usually don't do that step. Yeah. Right? They're there prescribing or trying to persuade someone instead of That's first true. making sure they're shoulder to shoulder. Ugh. Because, you know, if you're trying to scale someone's leadership that doesn't want to scale their own leadership, you're a fool. Yeah. Right. Like, do you actually want to do you want to lead more effectively is a, is a great question to ask somebody. That's one question that I had outlined in this conversation that I really wanted to get to. And I think you guys are getting to it. I just want to get it more uh, concrete. The question that I had is, how do you make sure that somebody's up for the gig of leadership? Yeah. That's an interesting question to ask both yourself and somebody who's uh, who is an option for a leadership role. How often do we ask ourselves, are they even up for this? Or is this just the next step or the next motion or they were a great performer and now we've got to promote them and the only place for them to go is into a leadership role or they have leadership on their resume. So obviously they must be up for it. And how do we how do we gauge that? Right. And so the awareness that we have as leaders about ourselves can help us open the conversation for others in their leadership. Uh-huh. And what I hear you guys saying to make this more concrete is that just because somebody has it on their resume or has the skill or even maybe the desire does not necessarily mean that they're up for the gig or right for the position or the opportunity. What I hear you saying is how willing are they to listen to the feedback, be aware of what the the impact that they're having and make shifts if needed. Uh-huh. To me, that's way more valuable in a potential leader or a leader than any skill, anything they can do, any tasks they might take off of my list. Are they willing to hear the feedback and make shifts if needed? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, and as you get into that, you find out who's willing to stand responsibly. Like uh-huh. like what's wanted and needed to have the future turn out because this isn't working. Uh, yeah. rather than drive the point, their position home, or create reasons for why they didn't do what they said they would do or didn't find the resource they said they were committed to finding. Like, it's one thing it's one thing to fail. It's another thing to defend what didn't work because whatever you defend, you end up inheriting. So uh-huh. if you can count on it. If somebody's going to defend what didn't work, you know it's going to occur again. But uh, if they're willing to look beyond that and reinvent what else could be possible, what else, what did I miss? What was wanted and needed? What what was going on with me that I didn't pay attention? Whatever. Then if that if a person's willing to take that kind of responsibility, you've got a live body there. That really, it can work out well if they're willing to take action that way and continue. Right on. Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of founders that we work with, I know even for myself, I was just speaking on a on a coaching call with somebody and I was just describing he was asking how long he stays at this organization. You know, he's he's a high level leader at this organization and you know, how long do I stay here? And my answer was so natural for me. And then I realized as I was saying it, he and I are in very different places. And you know, only because, and I say this because a lot of a lot of leaders that that I mean, a lot of people that see themselves as leaders, and I do. And I, I, why do I say that? Because I just naturally lead, and so because I naturally lead, like I naturally want something to work out. If I'm going to be involved, I want to know what's what's going on. I want to know where it's going. I want to know if we're you know if it's if it's working. If it's not working, there's I, I want to be responsible. I want to matter. I want my voice to be at the table. 
I want to push back. I want to be around great leaders. There's like lots of things baked in that are like so behind the curtain for me. I don't even think about it. And sure. a lot of great leaders are challenged because we assume other people want to lead because we just so naturally want to lead. So it's good to, to, to your point, Chad. I think this is a, for the, the first crux point is what am I assuming about this person? Because I assume they're like me. Uh, um, and I think to Dan's point, yeah, responsibility. I mean, there's, there's, there is one of the reasons why we use the Harrison assessment is it could really illuminates a lot of spaces in which someone can lead more impeccably or where the deficits are. We actually have language for it because, because the breakdowns in leadership might be relational. They might be um, cognitive. You know, they might be internal, like leading myself, um, like being myself relationally, leading myself uh, internally, and then leading other people. Like there's like, when we look, I'm speaking now, and the Harrison assessment is like these three columns where most of these, where these domains kind of fit in one of those things. Like, how am I, how am I with other people? How am I leading myself? How am I leading other people? Three very different conversations. And, you know, there are, there are knobs to turn, conversations to have, domains to explore with people whenever they're having a breakdown. But does someone want to take on ultimate responsibility? Um, that's, that's Dan's first point, which I totally agree with. Do I want to be responsible? Do I want it to be on me or am I going to live in some kind of excuse? Uh -huh. And then am I willing to look at things in a brand new way? Am I like, like, it, am I willing to be more inventive than I've been? Am I willing to have tougher conversations than I've had? Am I willing to take on a challenge that I've been, been unwilling to take on? I'm willing to ask for more help. Am I, how teachable am I? These are types of questions I, th these are, I guess, ways of being that, come out in questions um, when you're talking with somebody. And I mean, those are some those are some core things that naturally come to mind to your question, Chad. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so much more that I had on my list, but we've gone long. So this has been a great conversation. I want to end with a couple of hot takes. You guys ready? Uh -huh. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, here we go. And I, I'm changing the format a little bit. We've only done this once before, but I'm changing the format just a little bit. I want to hear from both of you on every topic. We have three topics. You ready? Remember, ready. answers are minute, minute or less. Pineapple on pizza. Yes. Canadian bacon, pineapple. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yes, I'm. I'm on the same wavelength. Uh, just as long as there's not too much. I, I like the Canadian bacon and pineapple, but don't add a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. There we go. That's great. All right. One hobby or skill you would like to master that doesn't have anything to do with your profession? Wow. Um, one hobby or skill that I'd like to master that doesn't have anything to do with my profession? I don't know. Um, let me think here for a second. I don't think about that. Chess. And it doesn't have to be master. It could just be practice. For me, it's chess. Yeah. I like to play chess. I like to read about it. I haven't done it in years, but I really have a desire to master it as a young man. And it was a good way to get away from everything else in my mind. Yeah. yeah. I was still sure. play with D5? I have played with D5. I trained him. I taught D4 when he was four years old. And I taught D5 when he was about the same age. That's great. That's amazing. I was for sure you're going to say like fly fishing or something, Dan. Oh, I love fly fishing, but I, I went to something other. Yeah, that's great. I've already mastered um, fly fishing. <laughs> you know, something I think about, I, I'm always convicted whenever I'm thinking about something and I'm doing it without talking about it, but I'd love to end up playing the piano. Mm. I'd like to end up playing the piano. I, I grew up in such a musical family. I like to sing. It'd be great to like learn how to play the piano and get you to sing. You have a great it. voice. You do have a good voice. Well, thank you. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Hello, mother. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh last question there's a lot and this is very topical um there is a lot of different conversations around the topic of school shootings and i wanted to hear from you two what do you think is the conversation our should our society should be having around school shootings uh Well, I'll go. I I think we should acknowledge we don't know anything about what's really happening and start to listen to each other without the political bias. 
Uh-huh. That uh-huh. it's not a political issue, it's a communal issue. And I think that there's enough to pay attention to that we're oversimplifying the problem, which is keeping us blind to any any potent resolution to it. It's not an either or in this case. It's a there are a lot of details. You know, I think that just generally in our society we oversimplify issues. And because it's hard and it hurts, we don't like to hold an attention of learning about it. Yeah. I think that's great. Um when I when I when I hear about tragedies, I'm always really curious about. I, I I'm I'm I'll I got a minute, so I I'm I was tend I I'm torn because I don't want to know about the shooter. In some regard, because I think I mean this is like an extreme version of crying for help. Most of these people that perpetrate these types of things, yeah, um, are really in a horrible place, obviously, to do something so heinous. Uh-huh. And so I don't want the glorification because it's like it's the last-ditch effort for fame, I believe, and for a lot of them. And the other side, I really want to know about the shooter. Yeah. Because usually there are patterns in which um, uh, this type of behavior makes sense to people. Yeah, there are pathologies. There are pathologies. And as a culture, I think probably to my answer, as a culture, I know in general, uh, we don't forgive as a culture. I mean, forgiveness as a culture is not something that is championed at all. And so much of these, not all of them, but so much of them come out of a deep-seated resentment and deep hopelessness. Um, and uh, so because people don't have language for how to become whole after deep disappointment. And, yes. I, and, that, and there's not a place in culture where that's like something that we champion. We love to point out pain and to point out and to justify horrible actions because of something in the past. Or your pain and injustice, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yep. And so we, 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 we um, I guess, celebrate the just, justification for uh, heinous acts instead of talking about how to bring people together. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And not in a superficial way. Like, how do we make people whole and give people, um, generate types of conversations where people, if you're in a really horrible spot, don't go do this. Go do this. Go here for this conversation. You know, there's not a conversation really around around health and wellness in a way that, like, can, can get to, so that as a culture, we can be with the people that are really troubled instead of pushing them away or locking them up. We don't yeah. believe in reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're ending on such a heavy topic, but I just, I, 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 Good I, job, echo, Chad. I didn't plan that out very well. Um, I echo both of pineapple. your Pineapple. Yes. On, yes. Lots of pineapple. Pineapple, yeah. pineapple on pizza. And I, I echo each of what I heard in your sentiments or the three through line is that, um, this is a communal conversation. This is, yeah. this is nothing but a community of people taking care of people. Uh, or not taking care of people. And uh, yeah, interesting. All right, thanks for playing along. Yeah. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks, Chad. Well, my friends, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. As a heads up, every Friday, we post a Cliff Notes version of that week's conversation with all the highlights in under five minutes. Check that out for a quick and powerful reminder of the principles discussed. I hope this conversation has been valuable to you. If it has, the greatest compliment you could pay us is sharing it with somebody who could use it. Thanks so much for listening and until next week, bye-bye everybody.